Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. And today my guest is Rue Teixeira, a senior fellow of the Center for American Progress and one of America's leading authorities on the interrelationship between partisan political outcomes and the underlying def- demographics of the American electorate. He's written too many books and articles to mention, but probably the most prominent of them was the 2002, uh, The Emerging Democratic Majority. Although uh, I'm very fond of the title of his more recent book, most recent book, The Optimistic Leftist. I'd sort of like to get into that maybe a little bit later. And what truly endears Rue to me, in addition to the fact that he's a very brilliant and provocative thinker, is the fact that we have the same birthday, December 15th, and that we also had the same high school alma mater. So, Rue, uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks. Uh, thank you. And I'm delighted to be here. And of course, I couldn't be more pleased and gobsmacked that we share a birthday. Good old December 15th which is one of the finest days in the calendar, I think we can all agree. Um, I guess one other thing I should add is that uh, in addition to senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, I am co-editor of the Liberal Patriot Substack newsletter, to which I urge everyone to subscribe. Well, I'm going to give you a subscription for your birthday on December 15th. <laughs> actually, actually, maybe we should give each other subscriptions to the Liberal Patriot on December 15th. <laughs> okay, sure. I'm, I, I'm also sure, like you, when you were a kid, you wondered what holiday our birthday was. December 15th, I learned, was the day. It's called Bill of Rights Day. Did you know that, Rue? I didn't know that either. You were just chock full of surprises today. <laughs> That's the day the Bill of Rights were ratified. Uh, and so with that as a preface, <laughs> let's get down to business. And the matter at hand is your recent writings about the short-term future of the Democratic Party. And I'm thinking in particular about the recent cover story you had. I think it was a cover story in, of all places, the National Review, conservative journal. Uh, You're obviously a liberal and a Democrat. But maybe in a nutshell, you can explain to us why, as, uh, as you argued there and elsewhere, you're very, very concerned about the branding, the brand that the Democratic Party is making for itself right now. Right. Yes. No, I, I am very concerned. I'm basically a data guy and I look at, uh, you know, underlying political trends. I looked at what happened in 2020 and uh, how the Democrats really underperformed relative to expectations. I looked at what was happening with, uh, to them, not just with white working class voters, but with non-white working class voters. The more I dug into the data, it fed a sense of disquiet on my part that had been building for years that the Democrats, despite running against a pretty crazy opponent, uh, were not actually positioning themselves well to be able to build a broad and dominant majority. And in this article you alluded to, which also came out in my substack under the title, How to Fix the Democratic Brand, I located the problems the Democrats have in three areas, cultural, economic, and uh, in a patriotism. And in all three of those areas, I felt the Democrats were putting themselves in the position of being fairly far away from the uh, median voter and their concerns, 
and in fact pretending to discount them with what I call the Fox News fallacy, i.e., if something is talked about in Fox News, it can't possibly be true in any way, manner, shape, or form, and we don't have to respond to it. Um, in fact, we, we just discount the whole thing. And I just felt like the Democrats were getting really far away from presenting themselves in a way that would appeal to that broad majority of the American public, not just you know, get the applause from the base of the party or particularly the people on Twitter or the kind of educated activists who, who really do currently dominate the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party uh, leaning infrastructure. So I thought all of that was putting them in a bad position and I uh, have been trying to make the case empirically and uh, you know, through general argumentation that the Democrats really need a, 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 a clear and large reset in how they present themselves to voters. Otherwise, they will not, in fact, do well against the Republicans, in, even in the medium term. Clearly, they're going to get their clock cleaned, it seems to me, in November. The problem is, beyond that, are they going to actually make much headway in terms of coming back and eventually being able to get out of this poisonous equilibrium we see between two parties, each of which is somewhat crazy in their own way? So, Rue, what I what I find especially innovative in your analysis is the concept that education, per se, is becoming a political fault line in this country, whereas I think a lot of people have traditionally thought, well, it's race or class. You're you're saying like the mere fact of having gone to college or not going to college is itself in some ways correlated with how people are are lining up politically. Why don't, why don't you sort of, I hope I'm stating your view correctly, more or less. Maybe you can sort of uh, help us understand a little more widely what the implications are. Right. Well, education is, uh, is a good proxy for class uh, in the United States at this point anyway. So really is a lot about class uh, using this as a proxy. People who do not have a college education, do not have the professional managerial jobs that have taken up an increased portion of the economy and that have become increasingly important politically, uh, they tend to live in different types of communities and they tend to be being, in a very broad sense, left behind by the way the American economy has evolved, which is true in general and particularly true in certain regions of the country. So we've known about this emerging ed education divide for quite a while. Uh, Democrats have been losing, most famously, white working class or non-college votes for a long time. And in fact, you mentioned my book, The Emerging Democratic Majority, that I wrote with John Judas. In that book, we actually uh, you know, made a big effort to point out to people, hey, look, there are these changes that are ongoing in the demographic structure of the American electorate, which all else equal should favor the Democrats. However, it's still the case that the white working class is an immense portion of the voting base and an even larger portion in a lot of key states. So therefore, if Democrats are to take advantage of this emerging opportunity to form a majority, they must keep a certain strong, at least strong minority of the white working class vote. They can't afford to have that vote move away from them. Now, what happened in the years after we wrote those words is, A, people forgot <laughs> everything we said about the white working class uh, and just concentrated on the demographic changes. Uh, and B, it was, in fact, the case that Democrats continue to do worse and worse among white non-college voters, culminating in Trump's election in 2016, which was indisputably built on the backs of 
white working class voters, particularly in certain areas of the country. So that has been ongoing, and we, we just know, we know that, that there's revealed preference there on the part of these, these voters who don't have a college education, uh, who are white, uh, and we know that they feel very alienated from the National Democratic Party. They feel like it's culturally different and alien from them. They're increasingly unsure the Democrats have their backs in terms of actually caring about them and their communities and their areas of the country. And you know, critically, after 2016, when there might have been an opportunity for the Democrats to try to you know, reset their image a little bit and appeal to these voters, I think the dominant trend in the party was to interpret their support for Trump as meaning nothing more than they're a bunch of racist reactionaries who are uncomfortable with the way the country's evolving. They have status anxiety. <laughs> uh, you know, they're not, uh, they're not living the great life the way they used to because we're a multiracial society, which, which I might add parenthetically made no sense for coming from liberals since they'd spent the last 40 years telling us how terrible the American economic model was and how it was disadvantaging and oppressing, you know, people who were not, uh, you know, part of the 1% or whatever. I mean, I thought that was a party line. Well, the party line changed after 2016, and anybody who, you know, thought nice things about Trump must be a stone-cold racist, and we, we shouldn't even bother to try, to try to reach them. So that was an important cut point. And then, critically, we saw in the 2020 election, you know, sort of counter everybody's expectations, a move of non-white, particularly Hispanic, voters away from the Democratic Party. And if you drill down on those voters, who were the Hispanics who moved away from the Democrats? It was primarily and heavily Hispanic working class voters who did not think, did not feel they were on board with where the Democrats were coming from, their stance in the economy, their stance on police and other cultural issues, uh, you name it. They did not feel the Democrats were representing uh, them, and they weren't nearly as uh, inclined as P Democrats assumed they would be to never vote for Trump, uh, a cascading series of incorrect assumptions about the nature of, of working class voters has, has led and, and, prompt, and sort of intensified this disconnect that we're talking about here between those who have a college degree and those who do not. Um, and I think Democrats are now facing up to the fact this somewhat that this may be a problem because prior to uh, this obvious bleeding among non-white working class voters, they kind of comforted themselves with, well, okay, it's just a bunch of racist white working class voters and who needs them? Who needs to worry about them? And it's hopeless anyway. But I think the recent events put the lie to that, that it's actually a big friggin' problem. The Democrats have a big, big working class problem that is not confined just to white voters, and in fact makes them potentially non-viable as a majority party. So let's take two concrete issues that are kind of going on now and try to analyze them through the uh, framework that you've just articulated. The first, the first one is what's going on in Florida right now with the so-called don't say gay law and the battle that uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor, and the Republican legislature are having with Disney over that. Um, I think if you were to ask uh, most, you know, sort of national Democrats kind of people I see a lot of here in D.C., they would say that what's going on in Florida is that um, you have a bigoted law that was sort of um, imposed uh, out of an exaggerated sense 
of anxiety, manufactured anxiety, and uh, that it's being compounded by this sort of heavy-handed uh, silencing or attack on the free speech of Disney. Uh, I'm caricaturing their view somewhat, and by no means do I mean to disagree with every aspect of what I just said, but is there, you know, I think you would agree that's sort of the prevalent view among national Democrats of what's going on down there. How would a Rue Teixeira <laughs> uh, adjacent Democratic Party interpret any of that differently? Yeah, no, this is a very interesting issue. One uh, does not have to think it's a particularly good idea to uh, pass laws about this kind of thing. One need not think even if you're going to pass a law about this, this is a particularly good law. I mean, there's some things in the law, there's some squishy parts uh, in terms of the ability of parents to sue and sort of the, the kind of squishy age appropriate, uh, you know, education on these kinds of things. But the fact of the matter is the heart of that law and the thing that's gotten the most publicity and Republicans will never let anyone forget about is to prohibit the uh, classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity in grades K through three. That's the core of it. And maybe you don't think there should be a law about it, but you know, what do Democrats think about that? Are they for classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity? We're not talking here about you know, a teacher letting slip that they in fact have a you know, partner of the same sex. We're talking about instruction. So what is the position of the Democrats on that? And I think this is this really you know, shows that the kind of cleverness behind the DeSantis approach you may argue that it's heavy-handed, but on the other hand, if you simply read that part of the law to people in Florida, it actually gets a lot of support, including among Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something most Democrats absolutely do not want to talk about. I mean, the polling data on this is all over the place. It really depends on how you ask the question. Um, but the fact of the matter is the basic a core idea there is not that unpopular. Um, and Democrats are completely unwilling in this and in many other places, while they denounce things the Republicans are doing that may in fact be heavy handed, may in fact be, uh, you know, extreme in some ways, but they never make it clear where they themselves would draw a line or that in fact they would draw any lines. I mean, are Democrats saying uh, that they would not want to have classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity for six year olds? I have not heard it. So this, this is a tremendous vulnerability the Democrats have on this issue right now, is they're so enthralled to their own activists, to the Twitterverse, to how this issue is being covered in the liberal-leaning you know, legacy media, that they're very reluctant to draw any lines about anything at any time, anywhere. And I think voters notice this. Voters notice that they are not willing to say clearly what they think is appropriate and where they would draw a line and where they, they would not. And I think that's why this issue is redounding to the benefit of this DeSantis, despite, you know, the reasonable argument. He may be going too far in some things and, you know, that may piss some people off eventually. But if we're looking at the sort of the median persuadable voter in Florida, not all clear to me he's hurting himself with them at all. And I think that by and large this issue 
around particularly the gender identity, trans, you know, ideology kind of issue is actually quite a serious one for the Democrats, where they're now in a position where if somebody asks them, any mainstream Democrat, any nominee to the Supreme Court, can you define a woman? They, they go homina, homina, homina. And I think this is not good. I think this is not where the most Americans' heads are at. Well, it seems like, you know, one, one way Democrats could counter DeSantis without betraying their own principles or offending their own base would be to oppose him while finding a form of words to acknowledge the feelings on the other side, so to speak. Um, I think that's, you know, that's crucial to political kind of uh, tradecraft. But that what's surprising to me is how difficult Democrats have found it to say kind of anything in the vein of sort of like, well, you know, this is a sensitive issue. Gender identity and transgenderism at, at, you know, children who are kindergarten, first grade, that's a sensitive matter. No question we want to have it resolved in sort of a fair and just way that takes everyone's interests into account, but we acknowledge the sensitivity. And over on the other side, of course, DeSantis's position is a lot more, it's extreme, but the virtue of his position is it's clear. Um, and I think, I think, you know, in a political contest, Clarity, clarity is a huge advantage. Uh, another question I, I would like your take on in terms of its political impact uh, in the context of your, your broader analysis is the, the issue that's sort of uh, of student loan and student loan forgiveness. Uh, it seems that this is gathering momentum. And for a lot of Democrats, you know who they are, Elizabeth Warren, etc. Uh, this is a they consider this not just great policy, but great politics. Mm -hmm. And yet, of course, by definition, it can only advantage people who have gone to college. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see that playing out if some sort of much larger scale uh, student debt relief becomes the thing that the Democrats decide to run on this year? I, I think the, uh, the thing that you're getting at, though, that I think is important and may affect how it plays if, it, in fact, it happens is that the obvious college-non-college -college split here. It doesn't take yeah. political genius to uh, surmise how Republicans might choose to deal with this issue as being a giveaway to people who don't need the money, and you, the struggling, you know, working-class, middle-income person, you go to college, you don't get anything out of this, and plus we have inflation now, and this is going to make it worse, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I don't know how that nets out. Maybe it would help bring some, make some people more enthusiastic about voting than they are now. And, you know, the Democrats still do have an advantage among young voters, so much less than they really should at this point. Uh, it is true that Biden's approval rating is, is absolutely appallingly bad among people under 35. Maybe this would improve it somewhat and therefore improve their likelihood of voting for Democrats. Um, I mean, I think the only thing that's clear here is it isn't clear. And I think it, it's just generally a poor supposition that the young you know, the under 35 vote, the youth vote, is really going to be key to this election anyway. I think that's, you know, cloud cuckoo land, basically. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, the uh, uh, oft-stated objection to the kind of political analysis and uh, recommendations, so to speak, that you're offering here is that, um, you know, solicitude for the white working class you know, can excuse a multitude of sins. Um, uh, my colleague Perry Bacon 
here at the Post has recently written, you may have seen a very provocative essay on what he called the politics of white appeasement, um, which is sort of how he was recasting the uh, elusive search over the years for a moderate Democrat, you know, one who would comfort these white working class voters uh, uh, without sacrificing uh, the the base of the Democratic Party, of course, which in large part are African-American voters. And Perry's argument broadly was that a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the core interests of African-Americans have gotten postponed over the years because of that kind of thinking. And, you know, that is an obvious counter to what you're saying. And I just wonder how you resolve that in your own mind, like whether you think attempting to kind of outflank Republicans in the culture wars is in some sense futile or more trouble than it's worth. Well, I would recast the elusive quest for appeasement of white voters as the elusive quest for victory. I mean, if you look in a clear-eyed way at the political arithmetic of this country, there is just no way in which you can form a strong majority without you know, doing at least somewhat well among white voters and at least not totally cratering among white non-college voters. So it's not a terrible idea to try to appeal to these voters. And on what basis do you do it? You do it on the basis of things that will actually help, for example, working class people of all, you know, of all races and ethnicities. This has really been the stock and trade of the Democratic Party forever, and it's still a great idea. Do things that actually would help in the areas of health, education, jobs, uh, social services, uh, you know, economic investments. Uh, do things that will actually benefit and lift up, you know, people of all races and ethnicities who are relatively disadvantaged. But it seems like the kinds of things that someone like Bacon means and others similar to him as uh, throwing uh, blacks under the bus, he seems to mean, I guess, things like you know, why isn't the Democratic Party more for reparations? Why doesn't the Democratic Party, um, you know, sort of, why do they take a tough stance on crime? Uh, why did, why did, haven't they defunded the police? I mean, I don't really know, you know, what his vector of things that they should stand for are, though sometimes it seems to boil down to talking about race more and confronting people about their racism, which is, you know, we know from research and common sense is probably not a great way to uh, form a majority coalition in this country. Um, I mean, look at the cultural issues we're talking about here, uh, culturally inflected issues. Look at the issue of crime. Who does crime hurt? Crime hurts black, poor communities more than any other single you know, community entity in this, in this country. And in fact, if you look at the opinions, the views of what people uh, believe in these communities, they are in fact not for getting rid of the police. <laughs> they want more and better police. They want criminals off the streets. I mean, obviously they want, and they've said clearly and loudly, they want this done in a fair way, and they, they are, they're opposed to police brutality, as indeed we should be opposed to police brutality against people of any race. Um, but, uh, you know, you're not throwing anyone under the bus when you say, you know, we should be tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. You know, I think the same thing could be said about some other issues that are culturally inflected, like, like immigration. I mean, it's not at all clear Hispanics are immigration voters at this point. People do, in fact, want uh, the border controlled. They don't want, you know, some variant or approximation of open borders. 
the idea that this is simply appealing to the worst instincts of white voters, I think very much underestimates and misunderstands where people's motivations come from and why they might have opinions different from yours. And I think it really exemplifies an underlying problem of the way a lot of liberals look at the American electorate, where they basically believe that people who hold certain positions about things like crime, immigration, the public schools, critical race theory, and so on, there could be no other explanation for why they believe these things or have these policy preferences than that they are, in fact, you know, racist, xenophobic, reactionary, you know, opposed to progress. There's no willingness to entertain the idea they might have real concerns uh, that, in fact, are not simply, do not simply stem from their, uh, you know, benighted views of the world. This, the net effect of that, of course, is to clear the field for people who actually are bad, like Donald Trump. But let's, let's, come, back, let's come back to the uh, book you wrote with the title Optimistic Leftist. Now, of course, everything we've heard in the last 20 minutes or so makes me wonder where the optimist is. But I want to ask about the leftist part, because that implies um, a certain view of the world that's about inequality along class lines. And one of the, the implications of the things you're talking about is that you still see politics as, a, as about resolving class inequality and addressing class injustice. Whereas, you know, the, the, for better or worse, Rue, the, the, the world is, may have moved on to all these issues of identity. And it makes me it, it makes me wonder sort of if what you're asking for is really not sort of maybe maybe it's kind of too late to talk about going back to a world in which economic class is once again the big point of difference between the two parties. I mean, if there's if there's a party that now that seems to have a uh, a rich, poor coalition going on. It is more and more the Republican Party, uh, incredibly enough. Anyway, I just thought I'd, I'd ask you about, about the role of class in ideology and how, that, uh, and, and how that fits into your paradigm. I think, I think we need to sort of think carefully about the idea that intrinsically politics has moved on to uh, being concerned about identity rather than class, and that reflects, I think, the, the assumption embedded in that, that, re, that reflects voters' underlying concerns. I'm not so sure about that. I think that it may reflect the underlying concerns of the parties that, you know, sort of alleged to represent them, right? I think the Democrats have increasingly identified their brand with a certain kind of cultural outlook. But that cultural outlook is not necessarily the same as even the people they represent, much less the views of the country as a whole. I mean, there was an interesting, uh, you know, among many interesting things in a recent survey that was put out by Pew Research of, of the black population in the U.S., um, they asked people, what are the biggest, what's the biggest problem in your community? And like the most, <laughs> by far the most common Concerns were about crime and economics. Way down like 3%, it was about racism, okay? Racism and diversity. You know, let's get real here. Do we really think that those working class people are sitting around every day thinking about, you know, doing the battle for 
you know, lifting up black identity and, uh, you know, fighting white supremacy and, you know, having more conversations about race and doing something about microaggressions and, uh, you know, whatever. I don't think I don't think that's where their heads are at. I think that's where their lives are at. And I think one thing we should therefore think carefully about in this context is in whose interest is it to talk incessantly about this stuff? In whose interest is it? to make these issues the center of political dialogue and discourse. I would argue it's not in the interest of the non-white working class, but it is in the interest of, on the one hand, a certain a big segment of the non-white professional class that works in nonprofits, media, foundations, and what have you, uh, who, you know, this is good for, for them, for their career prospects, for something that makes them feel comfortable. Um, and it's good for white liberals. <laughs> right? It's good for the educated white liberals who dominate the discourse in this country and, as I say, in some senses, have seized the commanding heights of cultural production. It's great for them. So, yeah, so I really want to really push back in the idea that uh, politics is intrinsically about identity. It's a, too much about identity in today's political discourse, but it, if it really reflected the concerns of, you know, the median voter, I don't think it would be. So, Rue, who... As you you surveyed the, the um, names and figures of prominent American politicians. Who, who, in your view, gets this? Who in, it could be from any party or even not in a party. Who, who is a potential uh, uh, candidate for office or already incumbent official who sort of gets the problem you're talking about and is coping with it effectively? Well, I think we, we could definitely bring up Eric Adams here. I mean, he's a you know idiosyncratic figure, but I think he's got a much better sense of where working class Americans come from, particularly non-whites, than almost everybody else in the Democratic Party. London Breed and San Francisco, I think, has done some very interesting things in terms of pushing back against the ideological discourse that dominated her city that was producing very bad outcomes in terms of quality of life and making the city a good place to live in. Um, you know, on the level, I mean, there, there are certainly some senators who are better on this stuff than others, like Sherrod Brown, for example. Um, I mean, heck, Raphael Warnock is, is better. I mean, I think cagier and smarter on this stuff than I think a lot of other politicians. Um, but I, I, I think that the, the public face of the party isn't there at all. I mean, I think Joe Biden is either uninterested in or incapable of striking a clear profile that would, in fact, move to the, culture, the Democrats to the cultural center. I think Schumer and Pelosi are no. basically not inclined to move in that direction either. Uh, so I think we are looking at a handful of representatives, maybe a couple of few senators, um, some mayors uh, that I think are waking up or have woken up to the fact the Democrats' image is fairly toxic among too large a segment of the American public to be truly successful in the, in the medium to long term. And, and, you know, sort of on the theme of the search for a new American center, I, I think there's, there's such a tremendous irony in the um, possibility that six years after the debacle of, of, of Donald Trump ascending to the presidency, and then particularly just two years or less after the debacle of his attempting to lead this horrible what, I don't know what you want to call it, coup, insurrection, riot at the Capitol, that the party, that party would somehow 
stand up in some ways much better shape at the national level than than ever before. And and I think for for those of us who are concerned with a broad political center in this country with the reestablishment of consensus, um, that's that's a pretty sobering thing to contemplate. Yeah, indeed. I mean, after 2022, people will have to start thinking about 2024 and gulp, you know what that means. So, yeah, I think you put your finger on something, Chuck, that um, really helps bring into focus the level of political malpractice the Democrats have sort of gotten themselves into and sort of promulgated. Considering it in that context, the Democrats have vastly underperformed the potential of moving American politics in their direction in a significant way. And they underperformed because they have not taken seriously the idea that to form a broad majority in this country, you have to have a pretty broad point of view and a pretty big tent. And you have to actually be very attentive to what voters' concerns are. You can't dismiss people who disagree with you or have voted for the other side as being racist troglodytes who are in the thrall of Fox News. Um, you have to actually not only believe in the necessity of moderation, but actually be a little moderate yourself. And right now, people don't believe it. They don't see the Democrats as a unifying political party with an offer to the American people and broad swaths of the American electorate that we are your party. We stand for unifying people. We stand for getting things done. We are patriotic. We... Um, you know, we think Americans can do better, and we think the Americans are good people. You know, all those kind of things. Instead, the Democrats have basically allowed themselves to channel some of the most culture warrior aspects of their own party and have responded to the culture warrior aspects of the other party by simply turning up the volume of that conflict. And I'm here to tell them the culture war is a losing proposition for the Democrats, a losing proposition. As long as it continues at a high pitch, they will never make that much progress. Therefore, it is. it shouldn't be an option. It should be a necessity to move to the center on a variety of cultural issues and show Americans that you are, in fact, a big tent party that does not look down upon uh, Americans as, you know, sort of large swaths of the country as being simply uh, deplorable. Well, I'm just exhaling right now. Um, because our podcast has come to an end, uh, on what I think is a pretty powerful note, certainly, uh, there can be no ambiguity about where you stand on what's necessary and appropriate, uh, for the political future. And I also think that even if somebody has a disagreement with any particular point you're making, they can't deny that you're doing it from a basis of experience and familiarity with the data that's that's really impressive. And, and I appreciate the fact, Rue, that you're willing to say what you think and um, that you're, you're willing to be unequivocal and to uh, call them as you, as you see them. And uh, for that, I thank you for being on times like these. And let's hope there's going to be another time like this where you and I get to uh, sit down and talk things over. Thanks again. 